Hey there, fellow Rethinker. Welcome back to the Rethinking Podcast. The place to learn about plural and diverse ideas in economics that you don't normally hear about. In this episode, we talk to Heske van Doornen. She currently works at Young Scholars Initiative, a part of INET, but didn't always know what to do. We walk her path through economics, find out whether economics answered her questions about the economy, and discuss topics such as basic jobs. Subscribe to the podcast on your platform so that you stay up to date with our newest episodes and enjoy this one. We're happy to have you rethink with us. Hey, Heske, it's so great to talk to you. Thank you for joining the podcast. Where did your interest in economics come from? Hey, Yulika, thanks so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Um, my interest in economics, wow, that's a, that's a big question right away. I have to say, it, it might have started earlier than I realized, um, sort of growing up and just hearing adults talk about money, right, as something that is always kind of in the way of dreams or hopes and things. But it only became a conscious interest uh, when I went for high school. I did a, an international school program for the past, uh, the last, sorry, two years of high school. I was in India because I had found out about the school that would take you for the last two years with other students from all over the world. So I decided to leave the Netherlands, which is where I grew up, and go to the school in India. And I had the time of my life, but I was also totally taken aback by by, by the economic situation there and the issues of development and inequality, which is super stark in India. And I had no tools for explaining what I was observing and becoming a part of. So I, uh, I, I walked away with a lot of questions that to me spoke economics, even though I had never taken an economics class at that point. So what kind of things really surprised you there? Well, I, I guess the inequality was the biggest item because in the Netherlands, right, you're from the Netherlands, I'm from the Netherlands, we are a pretty um, egalitarian country. Even the friends that I had that I knew to be, you know, of a rich family, you know, they had a bigger house and they meant, went for more exciting vacations, but it's not like they lived in a palace. And similarly, uh, you know, we didn't have too much money, but we always had everything that we needed. And I didn't know anybody that was sort of really struggling for food or anything like that. And then when I came to India, I saw things that were just miles in either direction. Uh, really, people who, once I, I got to see their home, their, their family home, they would have, you know, a little button next to their bed that they could click. And then somebody would pick up the phone and you could order a sandwich and then some kind of butler could come bring you the sandwich to your bed. So these, these were the kinds of people that would host, you know, 15 friends at a time and there would just be food and drinks and everything that you can imagine. And similarly, I had friends who came from a village and they had very, very, very little in, in terms of, you know, stuff they brought, little in terms of education they had had prior. And they were very smart and they were, you know, completely, you know, there in the right place in, in the school with us. But it was just a situation that was foreign to me. You know, both those scenarios were very foreign to me. And I had a lot of trouble kind of explaining to myself how that came about. So what did you do to try and explain it to yourself? I guess I, I sort of held on to it and just observed while I was there. I didn't take, like I said, I didn't take an econ class in high school. But by the time I got out which is also the time that I 
you know, sort of for the for the first uh, time after that after that program, I had a moment to think and reflect about it all because obviously while I was in this high school thing, I was really busy and I was constantly doing school and trips and friends and whatever. Then when I was out, I took a gap year and I decided to apply to college. I started thinking, what do I want to study? And I, I didn't fully settle on economics at that point yet. I actually settled on liberal arts, which is broader, right? It allows you to do a little bit of everything. But then by the time I got into college and I started, I went into economics classes, figured out that that might be a place where I could get some of those questions answered. So you went to college, which is not in the Netherlands. You went to a U.S. college, right? That's right. Yeah. So by the time I finished the program in India, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I had an international baccalaureate high school degree, which allows you to go many directions. And I could have gone back to the Netherlands, which was also a good option. But I really had kind of caught this international travel bug. And I was super curious uh, about the U.S. Maybe also because a lot of the students from my high school in India wanted to go to the U.S. So especially the students from India, they were really um, going after scholarships in America and explaining to me that it was not just hamburgers and malls. It was very exciting there, too. And uh, I had, you know, a little trouble, I guess, wrapping my head around that because I did not know the U.S. very well. I had only been uh, once when I was 13. I went to Florida once on a random trip. So that was a lot of hamburger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was this liberal arts uh, education that, that did convince me. And then I was able to visit to look at some of the schools I was interested in. And uh, I like the atmosphere, actually, surprisingly, I, I like the atmosphere a lot. So I, I did end up with uh, scholarships in the end being, being made available. I was able to go. So what is the atmosphere that caught you? Why was the U.S. so interesting? Why was it, why was it a place to go that others really wanted from India? Like, what draws you to the U.S.? Mm-hmm. I think... Probably for the students from India, I don't really know if I can speak for them, but I, I do know a lot of them were trying to get out of India, that they were they were thinking if I'm going to be an economist or a doctor or an engineer in the US, my prospects are much better. And, and they were just looking to get out. And for me, obviously, the situation is a bit different. In the Netherlands, I could have been perfectly fine and there is not such dire need to leave. But for me... I, there were a few things that I really liked. One was the sense of being on a campus and being in this little community, which is something I also had in the high school program and something that I never saw in the Netherlands, right? In the Netherlands, we all become adults really fast. We kind of go into a big city, you rent a room somewhere, you back to school, you work at a restaurant. You're really kind of part of the city right away. And in the U.S., the, the, the college years, the university years, are really kind of this intermediate little world where everything surrounds the, the experience of learning and being a student. So you get to live there, you get to do all your sports and your activities there, you have all these professors who live there too, you, you know, live a five-minute walk from your classroom, you get some, all these nice libraries to study in. It's really this kind of self-contained ecosystem 
that I, I really enjoyed because it made me feel really kind of at home and in this, in this uh, crew with friends and everything. But then I also really liked the encouraging spirit, I want to call it, uh, which, which in, in my school, which is a small, uh, small college close to New York City, it was really about exploring a range of different disciplines and going after your interests and using those years not to just prepare you for the workforce in this sort of very direct way, but to become a whole rounded person and uh, to pick up interests that might be you know, hobbies for the rest of your life and to develop yourself in a very broad way so that even if what, what it means to work a job is going to change in the future, you're going to have I guess you're two feet on the ground, sort of regardless of what happens. And I, th I think sometimes that's when people talk about the liberal arts, they don't see it that way. They see it more as, oh, there's a lot of teenagers reading Shakespeare and like, what are, what's going to become of them, right? <laughs> like, how are they going to learn to be a productive member um, of a big corporation or something, which they inevitably need to do one day or another. But I don't, that's not my experience or what I what I get out of it. I think it allowed us to be, to kind of develop ourselves in a, in a very broad way, which I do think is useful now. So what is liberal arts for people who don't know it? Yeah, I mean, very concretely came down to the fact that in order to graduate, which would take you four years on average, you would do both a major, which is one subject that you pick to be your focus, and in my case that became economics, you also do a range of, what did we call it? We call it distribution requirements, meaning you have to distribute your curriculum across everything, and that is required in order to graduate. So in order to graduate, I needed to do an English literature class, I needed to do a math class, I needed to do some kind of a physics thing, I needed to do a foreign language, so I did Spanish, for example, I needed to do, what else am I forgetting? Obviously social sciences I was already covering, but this way you got a little bit of everything. You, you had all that in addition to your major, so it became broader. And I guess the other thing I should add is that you don't need to know your major when you walk into the door. So I, something else that scared me about the Netherlands was that I wasn't sure if it was gonna be economics or psychology or sociology. I was scared that if I had to I had to pick before getting started, I would make the wrong choice. And I saw some friends of mine doing that too in, in Amsterdam. They went to, to uni and then they decided, ah, I don't like this course at all. I need to change, drop out, start over kind of thing. So I thought, oh boy, I don't want that. And in liberal arts, they let us kind of, you know, play for, for a year. Obviously you were getting graded and it's like real courses, but you could you could just start anywhere essentially and then figure out what you liked and then do more and more of that and then that became your major and there's some formalities right for it to become a major it needs to be x many courses of certain level of advancement and stuff but that's the rough idea interesting that's a very different approach yeah because in the netherlands you pick i mean the thing that you call a major is our studies <laughs> exactly yeah yeah the Netherlands is great if you know what you want. Mm. I, I think for me, it would have been very difficult to choose because even though I had those questions around economics, I didn't know what economics would look like. Um, and I didn't know really what that means in terms of jobs. 
or how to go about making that decision. I was more comfortable getting started and then evaluating as I went along whether whether I was on the right track. So how did you in the end pick economics? Why did you decide that this was the one for you? Yeah, in the end, it's it did, you know, as tricky as economics is, uh, you know, as we're here on a rethinking podcast, let's not kid anybody. As tricky as economics is, it was it was fulfilling that curiosity to some degree. Um, I think I did have pretty good teachers who were able to see through the textbook and kind of would would catch us if we took the textbook too seriously. They would say, but do you really think that's how it works? And then we would have a little conversation. So I, I credit them too for making it interesting and fulfilling. But yeah, I um, I did like economics. It, it did end up helping me kind of reflect on those on those questions around economic development that became a focus on, in my undergraduate years. Yeah, I, I I I will say by the time I was finished with with the undergraduate economics degree, I did not feel like I was done. <laughs> I did not feel like all my questions had been answered. I felt like a great deal of them did, but I knew that there would be more that I wanted more. And I guess that's what eventually led me to do a, another degree in econ as a master's. Uh, but it might have also had to do with the fact that economics sometimes is more about uh, very specific models and less about real world issues. So how did your teachers do that? How did they stimulate your critical thinking? I think it was just very, very little examples when talking about unemployment or, or wages, a minimum wage, these very simple things that you get in intro class, they would make it more concrete by talking about, well, what if you actually worked for a bakery and, you know, prices went up, would they actually raise your wage right away? Or what would you do? They, they would make the conversation more around something that you could visualize and what you could kind of enter the discussion so as to whether that seems plausible. I mean, it's hard to come up with a real example because it feels so long ago, but it, it was essentially going through the textbook and then checking with with common sense <laughs> as we went. Amazing. So what kind of questions got answered and what were you left with? Oh, a lot of questions got answered in the sense that we, we learned economic history. Uh, let me back up a little bit. Like I said, my, the, my focus ended up being development economics. And I, I came in with those questions largely around inequality in India, but I ended up kind of owning in on the, the influence, for example, of Western investments in the form of foreign direct investment into India, that became a little research project. So I was able to think a lot about institutions and what happens when a foreign firm, for example, goes and hires in India. Who is it hiring, right? Is it hiring my friends with the butler and the button that you can get a sandwich from? Or is it hiring the guy who came straight from a village and is really having to kind of scramble to, to catch up on things? And typically, it's the people with the button and the butler um, that kind of benefit from those kind of foreign influxes or, or policy changes uh, that intend to make, you know, all boats go up. It's, it's actually not all boats. It's the people who are already the most educated, or who already had the best network, um, who spoke the best English. So these kind of conversations uh, I was able to get into to kind of disentangle what happens there 
but of course also conversations about colonial legacies and how you know how how did India end up the way it did after the British left? Uh, we we were able to study some of that alongside what I always thought is really interesting, like informal economy. Because a lot of the time in India, a lot of people have jobs that are not at all on paper. They just get paid in cash. There's no formal structures whatsoever. They do little little tasks, and that sustains their livelihood. But it's it's informal, and that's something in the Netherlands you rarely see, right? So I I looked into that and sort of how large a portion of the economy that accounts for. So those were all very interesting things. But kind of as I moved along, I ended up wondering too about the US because that kind of was my new sort of foreign land that I was discovering. And there's a lot of um, economic challenges in the US as well. So I guess as some questions partially got answered, others opened up. And of course, as you know, from being a student, whenever you learn a little bit, you only learn how much more there is to to dig into. So you never really feel like you're getting anywhere, but you're, you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> what kind of questions arose for the US? What kind of economic challenges? Because that's very different from India, I, I suppose. I don't know, actually, but I would but, suppose it's very different. I mean, <laughs> this is maybe a little bit of a crazy thing to say, but I would say it's actually surprisingly similar in terms of... in, in really? that there is inequality everywhere too. Mm. Um, and it is it is more chaotic, right? So I guess for you and I, if we are comparing things to the Netherlands, both in India, I was seeing sort of things being a lot more stark and, and chaotic than I was used to. And then I thought in the US, the culture shock would be less. I thought, oh, you know, US is just another Western country. It's going to be pretty straightforward. But actually I found that that too was was very different from what I was used to in Europe. There is a lot of poverty in the US. I, I think sometimes, especially in my in my circles in the Netherlands, that kind of gets forgotten because we see the iPhones and MTV and you know, whatever you watch on TV is kind of the sort of innovation and and you hear about the American dream. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you see some of the crazy stuff you know, people people zoom in on Trump and such, but they don't really zoom in on the guy who lives, you know, in a little shack in the countryside where there isn't a grocery store within a 20-minute driving radius. And there is a lot of that. There's a lot of sort of forgotten, forgotten places that we don't see on TV. So what kind of economic questions did that pop up for you? That yeah, a lot of a lot of questions around how how do we go around how do we go about sort of taking that forward because it feeds into the conversation around politics too, right? A lot of a lot of the people who voted for Trump, you can you can identify pretty closely are people from these kind of forgotten areas that have been ignored in broad policy making, especially been ignored by the Democratic Party. So they felt like nobody was really looking after, looking out for them. It tends to be blue collar workers or right? people who actually do physical labor that is very much necessary. They move things around the country, they repair stuff, they build roads and we all rely on it. And yet there's very little respect for them. And they feel that and they feel especially from 
from the top, from the elected politicians. What can you do about that? There's a lot of conversation now about it's only going to get worse with the future of work becoming more and more more and more capital intensive and less labor intensive. So these kind of physical jobs, they're already almost gone, but they're going to basically be non-existent. And what do we do with all these people? They don't, they wouldn't feel comfortable just moving to Chicago and moving to LA and suddenly becoming a developer. It's not who they are. So those are a lot of, a lot of the questions that slowly bubbled up for me, but that are still, you know, going around my head now. And I think are, are a big part of conversations now. I, I guess my master's allowed me to dig into that a little bit. I've I've always been fascinated by the proposal of the job guarantee, which is a policy solution that is sometimes compared to the basic income solution. So instead of giving people, say, $1,000 a month to account for their basic needs, the job guarantee suggests you offer people a job in case they don't have one. So it's, it's basically saying that whoever wants to work and is able to work, right? If you are disabled, then you should still be getting a thousand dollars a month or some other kind of provisioning. But if you're willing to work and you're able to work and there isn't work, but there is actually all these things that need to be done. Like we need to clean up our riverbeds. We need to build more parks. We need to plant trees. We need to care for the elderly. We need to care for children. All these things are there, they're like blatant needs, but they're not always very profitable or they're currently not being taken up by corporations. So in the US, what, what could done be done um, more feasibly than most people realize is that the government could step in to help non-governmental organizations or nonprofits direct those kinds of jobs. The government could pay the wages so that whoever is out of work, right, whoever just gets fired from McDonald's and is not yet hired by Walmart, in the meantime, they can go plant some trees. And that solves so many issues because it, it, it also tends to be that when people are unemployed, they only lose skill and they lose hope and they lose a sense of self. And if you can catch them, you know, in that very vulnerable position, you can actually help them build skill and regain purpose. And maybe the, ne the next job that they would find in the private sector might be a better one than the one they, they just got laid off from. So that's, that's something that my professors at the Levy Institute are, are always looking into a lot. And that's what I found to be very interesting uh, proposal, especially for the United States. Yeah, that's so interesting because you, then, you, you give them a purpose in between, whereas people... I guess that's one of the things that I would run into with the basic income that you don't get a purpose from it. Like you get the money you need to sustain your living, which is amazing, but you don't get a purpose. Whereas a job that does something useful kind of gives you a purpose. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, basic income, it's not at all a bad idea. You know, I'm not, because sometimes these two are, are uh, portrayed as if they are fighting you know you know there's the basic income people and the job guarantee people and I don't really share that perspective but I do th I do think that that's kind of the crucial point that for some a basic income is really great you know especially for artists I think it takes a lot of the pressure off my my dad is an artist and he always worked in a bookstore to complement his illustration work and I always saw that that's really difficult because he doesn't have enough time to really go into the arts. 
but he doesn't earn enough money from the arts to let go of the bookstore. So if there were a basic income, I think for somebody like him, it would be amazing. But if I think about the people who are, you know, living in a small home in what is barely a town in the middle of Kansas, right, where there is very, very little going on, then the, just a thousand dollars is not going to fill your heart. It's not, it's not going to make you that much happier. It'll stop you from, from dying, but I don't, I don't think that's what we should aim for. I think we should aim a little higher. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Did you go into your master's right after college or right after your undergrad? No, I actually worked for a year. I worked uh, in New York City. So because my college, the liberal arts school that I was talking about, was about two hours from New York City. I always knew I wanted to try and get a job in New York. So I had done some internships there. And then when I graduated, even though I thought, you know, I would probably do more school later, I thought I should really get some work experience and I should go into the city and try that. So what did you do? So I did a couple different things. I will say it was probably the most difficult year of my life because it was a lot to figure out as a foreign student, especially because to get a good job, you need a lot of connections. And obviously as a foreign student, you don't have too many and you need a bit of time. And I was really afraid that I didn't have either because I thought I cannot afford crazy high rents in New York. So what am I going to do? I need to find a job immediately, you know, day one, I need to be employed. <laughs> Looking back, I I think that is probably the biggest mistake <laughs> I made because I found the job that I really didn't like. I won't name the company because it doesn't matter. You know, I'm sure it's a good place for other people, but it was a very corporate thing where we worked very long hours, like from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Cool. And it was supposed to be very cool. We had a ping pong table and we had beer on tap and everybody was 25 and uh, you know it, it, it was kind of a, a party scene but very hard working that I, doesn't sound like it would go together oh yeah but it does it's more like work hard and then play hard <laughs> okay and like live at the office or something what yeah well people would um people typically lived in Manhattan the office was near Times Square so in the super super busy part of New York City and uh, people would work to, uh, sorry, would walk to the office, have breakfast first thing at the office. They would have yogurts and coffee and things for us there. And then you take that to your desk and you would log into the system and then you would start doing the work. And the work involved selling these little consulting engagements to other consulting firms. So, you know, a company like McKinsey will do big consulting engagements for, I don't know, say Nike. Um, but then McKinsey might not want to do all the work themselves. They're going to have to do some interviews to do research essentially on whatever they're trying to tell Nike about. And so they would call us and then we would set up those little interviews. So we were like a middleman. We were like a consultant. No, we were basically a secretary that would help consultants get up in touch with other consultants who would then tell Nike what to do. So first of all, that was not very interesting. Uh, because I never actually got to find out what they would tell Nike. I would just set up the, the interaction. Mm. So I didn't find it inspiring and I mostly found it very exhausting. And I, I was, I had just done it. I, I took it because it was great salary and they were, you know, taking me right out of college. 
and I was like, this is it. Like, I'm going to wear, you know, the, the fancy clothes and I'm going to go to the fancy office and there's going to be the ping pong table and like, I got it all figured out. But I really didn't like it. So after three months, I quit. <laughs> then I found another job, which was a little startup that I knew of somebody uh, who I knew through some old networks. This person was running multiple little businesses. And one of them was a software for professors to use in the classroom. So we would make this software that was used particularly at business schools where they often want to do little exercises with their students. So for example, people who teach how to negotiate deals, they'll say, okay, students, you know, you guys are all going to go into little groups and you're going to pretend that you, this company is going to buy that company and then you need to figure out how much it's going to sell for or something. And then they want to analyze whether changing different approaches to how to go about the negotiation changes the outcome. So our software would visualize those different outcomes and approaches in a graph, like right as the exercise would unfold. So that was kind of like a tech-ish company, but it was so small um, that it wasn't, wasn't like working for an app or something. It was really more about learning how, how to start something. Um, you know, it became pretty clear early on that I wouldn't really stick around there for years either, but I was learning a lot. I, I really was able to see how to kind of be resourceful when you are in the early stages of doing anything, I think, right? When it really comes down to being creative, finding creative solutions, getting your first customers, building, um, building a list, building a reputation. And then from there on, you were like, I'm not done studying yet. Or you had specific questions yeah, you had yeah. to learn more about. What drove yeah, you back um, to university? It, yeah, exactly. I went back to the master's for a combination of reasons. I mean, I definitely felt, like I said, that after the undergrad degree, I still didn't know enough about the world. <laughs> I, I think I always approached studying with a bit of a sense of, I want to know how the world works enough so i can decide how to live in it right like it was almost as if i was trying to decide what to really do after the studies because i needed to get my bearings first on like what is this world that i'm a part of and then i would figure out what i would do with it i i kind of approached my first jobs that way too as like a learning experience of how do things work like what what does it mean to work in a private sector i i didn't go into that thinking like, I'm going to go into software development and that's what I'm going to be. I just kind of thought like, I w I'm curious about it. I want to understand uh, all these different approaches to work because I had done some nonprofit work. I had done some research, little little research work and then this private sector stuff. But yeah, I still I still had more questions and more curiosities about about the broad picture. So I found myself going back to school for that, but it also worked out logistically. It worked out well because I was on a one-year work visa. So if I had wanted to keep on working, I would have had to find a new type of visa, which is complicated in and of itself. So I'll, I guess, like a little logistical aside, it, it also uh, just made more sense. So did the masters teach you how the economy works? <laughs> I mean... I think you're never done learning about how the economy works, but I did, I did feel satisfied after. Yeah. I don't see myself doing a PhD. I think I really needed those 
those two years of the master's degree to feel like I, I had the proper time to really dig into stuff, be a full-time student. And now, you know, I'm, I'm really happy I did that. I don't feel like I need more, but I'm always, you know, reading and, and learning and things. I think I will never stop trying to puzzle out how the world works. <laughs> it just keeps going. <laughs> With everything you learn, there is more to, like I said, as soon as you dig into one thing, it just expands. So I don't think it'll ever stop. But I mean, I guess it's true what you said before, like once you start learning, you'll realize you're never done and you'll never stop. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's how it should be because it's enjoyable. It's fun to to explore and and as you do it, more interest that you never knew you had will come into the picture and at this point I'm, I'm almost enjoying it more you know just doing it on my own terms than i did in school right in school somebody really directs your attention they say like we're going to do this in this order and that's not going to make sense and now i just read on my own exactly in the order i want to if i don't like a book i just throw it away and <laughs> i have to say that's actually a lot of fun <laughs> so i i do wonder how from there did you get to ysi which is young scottish initiative yeah. um what is ysi and how did you end up there yeah so ysi or the young scholars initiative is a program of the institute for new economic thinking or INET. So INET is an organization in the US, in New York, um, a nonprofit that has been founded in 2009, you know, right after the financial crisis, when it became clear that economics was not answering anybody's questions. It wasn't really serving, it wasn't really serving its purpose. Um, a few people came together, including George Soros, who had the means to set up an organization to essentially fill that void. So INET does a number of different things, trying to support economists who are hoping to improve the discipline in a way that it can answer those questions. And one thing that it does to that end is that it has supported this network of young scholars. So essentially a community of people like you and like me who are trying to use economics to answer real questions. And... Um, you know, some of them might feel pretty supported by their by their universities and their professors, but others are really kind of on their own, feel like they have they have to, you know, supply their own curriculum because they're stuck just reading the, the textbook that they know to be quite limited. So the Young Scholars Initiative is essentially a place for all those people to come together online in principle, but also face to face um, when when, that's, when, when possible. that's possible, which used to be quite frequent, but as you can imagine now, we are a bit restricted. Um, but yeah, essentially the Young Scholars Initiative is, is like a space for people to create for themselves the education that they wish they were given. So it's it's uh, kind of like supply your own demands. Jay Pocklington sometimes says, Jay, Jay Pocklington's the guy who started it all. It's... Uh, a space that the, the Institute for New Economic Thinking makes possible to essentially say, okay, here's a website, everybody who is interested in doing this kind of thing, make yourself a profile and find find the other people that are interested in the things you're interested in, 
and then collaborate on doing stuff that you know satisfies your curiosity so if you know you're you're interested in healthcare and the economics around that i know somebody for example who studies at the lse who's doing similar stuff so you could for example say oh i'm pretty curious what kind of professors she has and what she's learning we could do like a little virtual exchange or something like this <laughs> this girl at lse might tell one of her professors to do a webinar and you could do the same from Nijmegen and then you could learn from each other and you essentially expand your own curriculum in the direction that you would find interesting. So that's why I I wound up working for them after I finished my master's. I have to say it's not a job that I saw coming. Like I couldn't have predicted it to work out the way it did, but it worked out really really beautifully i'm very grateful to to work at inet and um i guess the way it worked is that obviously when when you're in your masters and it's a two-year program and you're in the second year you're like okay i gotta start thinking about what's next um and uh you have this one summer where you can do an internship and that's always a useful thing to do towards getting a job so i was on the lookout for internships and I will say I was getting a bit worried in terms of figuring out what I wanted because I figured out at this point that I did not want to go to Wall Street, right? I had already tried the sort of corporate thing and it did not work out. I also did not really want to do full-on research because, like I said earlier, I always I like studying to the degree that it allows me to understand the world enough so I can go and do things in it. <laughs> I didn't really want to perpetually be a researcher. Uh, however valuable I think that is, I just, I don't think it's, it's for me. So those were two sort of clear career paths that I knew I did not want to go down. The other one is to go more into policy, which some of my friends have done after leaving. And that would typically involve moving to Washington DC, going into one of the institutions there, which is super interesting and definitely has that kind of real world component much more, but it is really kind of politicsy. And I, maybe because I'm an immigrant in the US, I never really felt invested enough in that in order to really go deep into it. You know, I can't even vote here. Am I really gonna work in US politics? I don't know. <laughs> And obviously, I could have gone back to the Netherlands at that point, too. I could have said, okay, well, US was great for my education. Now I'm going to bring this home and see what I can do there. But at that point, I had actually gotten so comfortable that I didn't want to do that. So long story short, I was getting a bit worried, but I talked to one of my professors about all this. And I said, you know, I don't really know what I want, but I like economics. I like these themes. I like working with it. But I like, you know, just getting those ideas out there not so much researching forever. And he said, you know, maybe they could use that kind of skill at INET, at the Institute for New Economic Thinking. So he put me in touch and I wound up working the summer with YSI and INET towards what was called the Festival for New Economic Thinking. That was a festival that Rethinking Economics was also involved in, in exploring economics or the German Netzwerk, right? Um, they were involved in it and all these different groups that were in some shape or form trying to reform economics were getting together in Scotland 
so that was a really really fun project to work on that summer and uh, I I wound up being able to bring in some skills that I thought an economist would never need like I really like graphic design and illustration like I said my dad's an illustrator so I kind of grew up like that and in this internship I was able to throw all that together and say like here I can be useful in this way and in this random way that I never thought I was gonna pick back up again and that surprisingly worked out in a way that they they were able to kind of find 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 a place for that and, and get use out of it so I felt pretty happy and uh, then I had one more semester of school left but I was already talking to them and saying like you know I really really loved this this internship and I, I love the process of working with those people so I I got to stick around after I graduated I became one of the managers for the Young Scholars Initiative together with Jay who I mentioned earlier Jay Pocklington and uh, Thomas Vass who is from Denmark and actually also uh, spent a lot of time in rethinking before coming to YSI as a, as a manager. So what do you do now? Now, like in terms of a concrete, uh, whether what is on my to-do list for work type of thing? I mean, just kind of examples of what does YSI, what do you do as a YSI manager? Do you organize activities? How does that work? Yeah, it's more like we maintain the space in which other people can organize activities, I would say. So concretely, or let me actually say a little bit more about how YSI is structured, so then it can make more sense how I maintain that structure, I guess. Um, because the way in which it's set up at the moment is that, first of all, it's super open. So if you want to become a member, you go online, you go to youngscholarsinitiative.org and you fill out your name and like where you study and where you live and then a couple more things and you're a member. Once you're a member, you can figure out, okay, you know, there are some topics that I'm interested in. I'm interested in maybe, like I said, inequality, that's always a big one for me, but I'm, I'm also uh, interested in, I guess, maybe the more behavioral side of things. So we have a group called Behavior and Society. And now, you know, almost everybody is interested in climate because it's so urgent. We have a, a, a group called the Sustainability Working Group. So within the broad network of YSI, we have 21 different thematic sort of subdivisions. We call them working groups. Um, that once you're a member, you can say, okay, I want to be, you know, part of these three, for example, working groups. And once you've done that, you get notified every time that something happens in the working group. And when I say something happens, that just means somebody took the initiative to organize an online discussion or somebody figured out that they wanted to do a little webinar series um, about inflation. For example, we have a, a financial stability working group and they've recently been doing a meeting every Wednesdays, I think at noon, New York time about inflation because inflation is like a huge conversation now. Right, everybody was worried about inflation after the pandemic, but also we have to do all this spending and is that going to lead to inflation? So this is a big topic and um, this little group of people in YSI, I think it's about 10, 15 people, figured that they are curious about this, they want to investigate it more. So every Wednesday at noon they're going to come together and they bring in a different speaker each time. So just yesterday they had um, Ushe, who is a, a young scholar from Zimbabwe, who could actually explain about the Zimbabwean inflation that everybody always points to as this big 
scary thing because we all have seen the little note that says like 100 trillion Zimbabwean dollars or I don't know what the currency is. Point being, a lot of what happens in YSI is because people set it up themselves, but they obviously need some tools. So they need Zoom. They need to find others who are interested in coming to attend whatever they put on Zoom. We built this infrastructure online in order to connect those people to each other and to host all those different webinars and uh, to be able to join and unjoin and get notifications from all these different things that take place in those working groups. So again, like if you go to YSI, or sorry, if you go to youngscholarsinitiative.org, you can see all that. And it's basically just getting created by Thomas and Jay and myself, and then this team of web developers that's based in Denmark. So we will have meetings in the INET office to say, okay, you know what, like everybody keeps complaining that for example, the Zooms don't get recorded. Then we'll say, okay, well, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to provide learning materials for people that that don't don't have the ones they have or they want. So we gotta record these Zooms and we gotta store them somewhere. So now we'll come up with how we want that feature to work and we'll go tell our developers in Denmark and then we'll go build it and then it comes back to us and then it goes to you guys so hopefully you can use it. Um, so some of it is, is, is web design, I guess. That, that I do to maintain that space. Other stuff is helping to get the word out. So I'll, I'll be tweeting and sending emails and making little flyers about different things that people organize so as to get attendance in those, in those things. And then before the pandemic, a lot of it was actually organizing conferences because of course you can do a lot of things with people online and it can be quite gratifying but we really want to put people in, in a position where they have lasting connections with others. And so you might meet somebody on a webinar, but once you see them in person and you actually have dinner together and you really talk about these things that you share, that's when I guess the friendship gets to the level where maybe, you know, three years, three years later, you will recommend that person for a job interview and then they get professorship at the place that like it's going to, make their career kind of thing. So we are always working towards those more long-term goals where people are gonna hopefully find the jobs they want, doing the kind of economics that they can be really proud of instead of the economics that they think they need to do in order to impress uh, whoever's hiring them. Because mm. that's, I guess, the, the underlying thing is that you, are obviously, Yulika, you're familiar with the fact that you're sitting in a classroom and you're like, well, this is not really answering all my questions, right? The textbook is very limited. But as you proceed through your career, like those issues don't really go away. They stay and they become, <laughs> I guess, heightened by the fact that you're like, well, I'm ready now to do research in what I think is the right way, but people don't seem to appreciate it. Or when I apply for jobs like with that, it, it's, you know, I get pushed away or I get sort of ignored or I don't get respected or I don't get published or I don't get tenure. So that's, that's what we hope to alleviate a little bit with the, the strength of the network. Because of course, the more people are supporting each other and the more they are spread out and the more they get into the institutions that have power, the, the faster we're gonna be able to uh, change things around sort of in all directions. So YSI really seems to be a place where you have to be able to be patient then to see 
change is it a skill you learned at YSI yeah <laughs> I think so I think so I think it's also a skill that you learn as you get older or it's something that you know I think when when I was in high school when I was doing this program in India two years in India seemed like forever I was like whoa I'm doing this crazy thing I'm gonna be there for two years like that's insane um and then obviously that's over and then we're like okay I'm gonna take a gap here it's gonna be a whole year <laughs> and then I was like okay I'm gonna go to college four years of college like this is nuts this is the longest thing I've done anything forever like <laughs> but in the end, like a lifetime is actually pretty long, right? If you're going to live to 90 years old, that's a pretty long time. And you're, you're going to be able to see meaningful changes develop over decades. And I'm now, I think, yeah, thanks to YSI, probably able to appreciate that a bit more out of, out of sheer necessity, because you simply cannot see the fruits of your labor um, after working on something for one year. There will be things to celebrate. But if you're in the business of these sort of humongous societal shifts that that you know rethinking works on that too and and um certainly inet is is you know undertaking a very large challenge. You have to be realistic and and remember that you have to stack tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of tiny things on top of each other, and you never know when. It's gonna be big enough of a pile to like start falling over or to start pushing pushing that thing over that you're trying to push up against. And you just have to yeah, you have to go the long run or or think about it in the long way to kind of keep your keep yourself in check with with reality. Otherwise you get super excited I, I about little wins, but you get super disappointed when you hit a roadblock and then you might you might give up or you might stop or slow down when really you need to remember you're going for the moon and you just got to keep keep at it. So with every guest, we do a little lightning round. I ask a question and you just say the first thing that uh, comes up. Okay. So what is a skill any economist should learn? Communication. I think e economics is a particularly dense, jargony language. <laughs> fair and uh, in order to really make use of it and to see the beauty of it and to allow other people to kind of join the cause or join you know the effort uh, of reshaping it we need to make it more accessible in in the way we speak about it who do you admire or look up to in economics i guess because i'm talking about this communication thing the person who comes to mind is uh, stephanie kelton who is incidentally also somebody who talks about the job guarantee a lot. So she is very, very good at making things concrete and, and clear and understandable to almost anybody. What is a question you want me to ask that I haven't asked you yet? Oh, I don't know. Um, I guess the one, the one thing that you, that I would, I don't know if it's a question, but the one thing I would want to, emphasize maybe before we close is that you know whoever's listening and wanting um more out of economics than they're getting you know please feel supported because it can feel like you're alone and you have to figure all that out for yourself and you're just by yourself reading 
Matsukato's book or by yourself listening to Varupaka's lecture, whatever it is, right? Um, and I guess I just want to extend the invitation to join us in YSI and make sure um, people understand that they, there are so, so, so many more people doing that same thing or having those same questions and challenges and, and curiosities that it's a, it's a shame not to connect with them because it can really enrich the experience. That's also an amazing plug to find INET and YSI yeah, anywhere. So what are your future plans? Any things that you're really excited about that's coming up? Well, I just hope the pandemic gets gets wrapped up and we can all hang out in person. I think that's that's probably one of the one of the first things we'll do with YSI is to have a big in-person conference when we can. There is there is, you know, our 10 year anniversary next year. Ooh. Which, uh, is is a big deal. Yeah. So we'll be 10 years of YSI. INET has been around a bit longer, like I said, since 20, uh, sorry, 2008. But YSI has been around for 10 years next year. And it got started in Berlin. So it might be a chance to go back to Berlin and do something. But I don't want to say, I don't want to say that because who knows, pandemic and everything. But it, we'll have to acknowledge it in one way or another. So I think you'll, you'll see us then. If not sooner, you'll, uh, you'll hopefully see us in person. <laughs> Amazing. So what do you want to tell present and future economic students? What's your advice for them? To go after what you're curious about and not worry so much about impressing other people with your work. I think that's the, those, those two are often pulling you, right? Either you want to write a paper that looks really good on the job market and that looks exactly like an economics paper, like a stereotypical economics paper, but better. That's what you're going to do. But that might not be interesting. And if it's not interesting for you, you're not going to put the kind of care and work into it. And it's not going to come with your unique perspective, that it's not going to add so much value. So if you go after what you're really curious about, you also put yourself in the position to be most useful. Um, and that might not be to, it might not be impressive to, everybody but it's going to be impressive to the people who care and the people who have their heart in the right place and that's that's what you want and the final question what does the future of economics look like according to you the future of economics according to me is bright i think we have so much reason to be hopeful because every day i talk to people like you and and i see the effort all around and i, I think sometimes when you work hard at something it's easy to get discouraged and to think that it's all going to be for naught or it's, it's you know the work the work is not going to pay off but the truth is like all all the energy has to go somewhere right you just don't exactly know how it's going to come back or where it's going to bubble up but we're all around the world putting so much energy into this there's no way it's all just going to fizzle away it's, <laughs> it's building it's building and and it's going to be a magical explosion so yeah i think i right. love that well heska thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you so much for having me Yulika. this was great thank you for listening to the rethinking podcast hit the follow button on your platform so that you stay up to date with all we have in store for you you can also find rethinking economics and L on social media just click the links down below or go to our website until next time we'll talk again soon